This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. It's a Friday evening, so I would usually be joined by Aaron Bastani. But with Aaron on paternity leave, I am joined by Ash Sarkar. Um, Ash, a pleasure to see you. I'm so glad that I could prove that the great replacement is real and displace my colleague, Aaron Bastani. <laughs> uh, I, well, can you, I thought you have to just replace white people with the great replacement. He's half Iranian. Does that count? Is that, is that going to count for Douglas Murray and the rest of them? He's half Iranian, half Italian, and it's his Italian half that I've displaced. But also, Michael, I'm gravely insulted. <laughs> You've not noticed anything new? Anything new? Your hair is different Thank you. somehow. Oh, <laughs> what have you done? Straightened <laughs> it or cut it? <laughs> There's like six inches of it gone. Oh, my God. Oh, God. It's a, it's a whole new you. I love it. Gorgeous. Um, we will be talking on tonight. I think just shave it off, you know, it's much easier. Um, we're going to be talking about violent far-right protests in Dublin. Um, and then we'll be talking a lot about Israel-Palestine and Gaza, as usual. Hostage exchanges between Israel and Hamas begin. Um, perhaps the worst Kay Burley interview yet. And a pretty incredible conversation, I have to say, between Piers Morgan and Norman Finkelstein. On to our first story. Riots erupted in Ireland's capital last night. These were the scenes in Dublin city centre where large crowds gathered to shout anti-immigration slogans. The violence soon escalated, leading to clashes with the Garda, that's the Irish police. Police cars and a double-decker bus were also set alight. Later, storefronts were smashed and looted while a tram was vandalised and also set on fire. And this video shows a holiday in Express in Dublin, which the crowd reportedly believed was housing migrants. Its windows were smashed and its foyer set alight. The owners of the hotel have today reported that their staff and guests were, quote, unharmed. This is Garda Commissioner Drew Harris describing the violence this morning. Overall, we have 34 arrests, 32 of which will be appearing before the courts this morning. Uh, we have 13 shop. Shop, uh, shops which have been uh, damaged, significantly damaged, or uh, have been subject to looting. Uh, we have 11 Garda vehicles either destroyed through arson or very extensively damaged, and the three uh, buses, public transport buses destroyed, and a Lewis train destroyed, and also then the, as the extensive damage, as I've set out. So huge destruct, dest um, destruction from a riotous mob who were, in effect, responding um, at, a, at our crime scene to try and break into that crime scene and disrupt the crime scene at about uh, half five, quarter to six. And then from there on, the violence escalated. Harris made reference to a crime scene there. That's because the rioting was apparently triggered by a stabbing that took place in the city yesterday. Now, at lunchtime, three young children and their carer were injured in a stabbing attack outside a school. The children were aged five and six, and one of them was left fighting for her life. The carer, a woman in her 30s, was also left seriously injured in the attack. The alleged assailant, a man in his late 40s, sustained multiple injuries after a crowd overpowered him. 
The BBC has reported that the suspect is an Irish citizen who has lived in the country for more than 20 years. But on social media, users began to spread the rumour that he was a foreign national. That hasn't been confirmed by the authorities. But it was enough to prompt a reaction from Ireland's growing far right. And one person tweeting was Irish MMA fighter Conor McGregor on Wednesday. So that's before yesterday's attack and before the riot. He posted this on Twitter. Ireland, we are at war. Now, that tweet followed a series of, of other tweets criticising Taoiseach Leo Varadkar um, for urging migrants in the country to register to vote. Some of those were accompanied by the hashtag for Ashling, and that's a reference to Irishwoman Ashling Murphy, who was murdered by a stranger in January last year. Her killer, a Slovak national, was sentenced to life in prison last week. And um, then as riots broke out yesterday, um, McGregor posted this. Innocent children ruthlessly stabbed by a mentally deranged non-national in Dublin, Ireland today. Our chief of police had this to say on the riots in the aftermath. Drew, not good enough. There is grave danger among us in Ireland that should never be here in the first place. And there has been zero action done to support the public in any way, shape or form with this frightening fact. Not good enough. Make change or make way. Ireland for the victory. God bless those attacked today. We pray. Now he followed that tweet up with this. You reap what you so, which I mean, looks naturally like a response to the riots. Um, speaking this morning, Tishuk Leovaradka said this about the involvement of the far right in last night's riots. To all those cowardly champions of Ireland who took to the streets of Dublin last night, let me say one thing. Ask your sisters, ask your friends, ask everyone you know what they fear most on our streets. They're afraid of you afraid of your anger and your rage, afraid of your violence, your hate, and how you blame others for your problems. As a government, we will be relentless in protecting our citizens and defending our people. The Guardi will be on the streets in large numbers and will do whatever it takes to fight back waves of ignorance and criminality. The Minister for Justice will coordinate with the Commissioner to ensure we never witness such terrible scenes as the 23rd of November 2023 ever again. And Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald said this. Our community has been traumatised twice by the barbaric knife attack on young children and their teacher and then by marauding racist mobs who ran riot on our streets. Our community does not feel safe, has not felt safe for some time now. This must change. Um, to find out more about the events in Dublin and the Irish far right more generally, I spoke earlier to Neve Macdonald. She's director of the Hope and Courage Collective. And I began by asking her what we know now about yesterday's attack. What we do know that is there is um, two young children in hospital at the moment who are stabbed and a care worker as well. And the assailant has um, is in custody. And what we do know is that um, their house um, has been kind of um, investigated by the police. So that's a, uh, the, the Irish Guard. So that's as much as we know on that for now. We still don't know too much concretely about the, the attack yesterday, but in a short space of time that led to um, riots on the streets of, of Dublin. Can you talk about that sequence of events? How did that end up happening? From what we saw, um, we got reports of the attack, which happened about just before 2 p.m. in Dublin. And then we started to see within an hour, we started to see kind of online kind of disinformation and misinformation about what the attack, who the assailant was, what happened. We saw kind of known kind of far right agitators on the scene videoing and kind of filling the, the lack of information void 
And um, and then within about an hour and 40 minutes, we saw kind of known far right um, organizers, known far right influencers who've been part of violence and incitement before calling for kind of demonstrations in Dublin city centre at a location called Aspire, not too far away from the instance to call for seven o'clock. But by 5 p.m., what we did see was a kind of mobilization of people around the area. And then that kind of got built up um, into kind of pushing past police lines, trying to get up to the area where um, the area where the incident had occurred and the police were pushing back. And this started to grow quite quickly into violence. And this has been filmed by known far-right agitators calling for people to come in, calling for them to push past the police. And um, and by seven o'clock, we saw um, known kind of um, violent um, actors on the streets inciting violence. And we saw rioting. We saw kind of police cars being burnt out. We saw buses being burnt out. And we saw Lewis, kind of one of our trams in the city centre. We saw looting. And we saw kind of attempting kind of of hotels have been burnt as well on the streets. So could you talk about the the nature of the far right more generally in Ireland? I mean, people often look at Ireland as one of the few countries in Europe where there isn't a powerful far right parliamentary presence. Um, But presumably, I mean, it it seems like there is a presence on the streets. So could you sort of explain the nature of the far right in Ireland? First of all, there is no Irish exceptionalism, which was kind of something that has been kind of muted in the past. So I suppose what we've seen, especially since the two referendums in Ireland, since marriage equality and uh, for a woman's right to choose um, was granted through the two referendums, we've seen kind of a growth of the far right in Ireland. And we've seen kind of in recent years growth of kind of three kind of uh, political organisations. We've also seen a growth of kind of far right influencers using uh, COVID, um, especially to build an online base. And that base has now kind of got into some communities. So over the last year, we have really seen since the the war in Ukraine, an increase of mobilized, uh, mobilization of people seeking refuge for various reasons coming to, coming to Ireland. And the far right weaponized that and used kind of fear, um, hatred and lies and disinformation to whip up uh, in communities and to grow a base. And they've used kind of the conspiracies from COVID quite adeptly, their messaging quite adeptly. So we're starting to see um, that the far right are going to kind of run a lot in elections and we have our local elections next year. We can see um, there is a growth of kind of in racism and, and kind of hatred and extremism that we haven't seen in such an organised form before. When it comes to the migration issue in particular, I mean, what are the flashpoints? So in England right now for the last couple of years, it's been these small boat crossings across the channel and then people who are in, you know, they're called migrant hotels essentially because there's this enormous backlog um, for the government processing people. I'm wondering when it comes to Ireland, what are the sort of issues that have become, um, one could say, I suppose, toxic in public discourse? We're in a state of emergency, especially since the Ukraine war. And so accommodation centres are kind of popping up in lots of different spaces. And this has been weaponized, And they're using kind of particular phrases around kind of who's coming, why they're coming, weaponizing that if it's kind of men coming and using the kind of threat of violence and, um, and sexual assault. So kind of using old racist tropes and using that with fear um, within communities and where there's a lack of information coming from the state. Now, no, no community should have a veto or has a say who lives or who doesn't. But I think the government's lack of communication and, and, and its emergency response to people coming from Ukraine and the wider asylum system has caused a kind of um, a death of information that the, the far right have weaponized quite adeptly and used fear, used the housing crisis, used kind of cost of living um, to, to create scapegoats in society.
And finally, I mean, to what extent was this a social media phenomenon that sort of ended up on the on the streets? Is that really where the Irish far right is 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 organised and I mean effective? One could say. Yeah, I suppose they're very adept at using social media, but also I think it's like we have the headquarters of all the social media platforms here in Dublin and they do not abide by their community standards. They are giving free reign and a, very, a hate megaphone to the extremists in Ireland. And we can see the organising happened on X yesterday. So the the, the kind of four prominent kind of far right um, white supremacists who were leading this organised everything on X. It was filmed on X and... Um, this is not moderated in any way, sense or form. So we see that the role of social media kind of plays a key, um, a key role in in the growth of, of hatred and extremism in Ireland. And Ireland's about to become the kind of European hub for the new kind of European Team Digital Services Act. And we will be looking for proper regulation to keep our communities safe and to reduce the impact of hate and extremism and real world violence across the country right now. Um, let's go straight to our next story. The first group of hostages held by Hamas have been handed over to Israeli authorities. Released under a four-day ceasefire deal, 13 Israeli hostages were taken across the border between Gaza and Egypt by the Red Cross this afternoon after spending seven weeks in captivity. The Prime Minister of Thailand also initially said that 12 of the 26 Thai hostages held in Gaza have been freed. It now appears that only 10 were Thai, um, as well as one Filipino national. Um, that's according to the Red Cross. The release of those Thai hostages was arranged in a separate deal to the one made between Israel and Hamas. So these releases will be in addition to the 50 Israelis. In recent weeks, Thai government officials reportedly brokered the deal between Qatari and Egyptian officials, as well as in meetings with Hamas leaders in Tehran. Trucks carrying much-needed aid also began entering the Strip shortly after the ceasefire began. Under the terms of the deal, Israel will allow up to 300 to enter each day of the truce. It's now been reported that 39 Palestinian women and children prisoners have also been released from Israeli jails. Under the deal, 50 Israeli hostages will be exchanged for 150 Palestinian prisoners, many of them held without charge or trial over the next four days. Israel has left the door open for further exchanges and Hamas has expressed hopes for an extended deal, saying they're willing to release all of their hostages, including soldiers. Ghazi Hamad of Hamas's political bureau told Al Jazeera this. At this phase, we are talking about the civilian hostages. Regarding others, we are looking for a comprehensive swap and exchange to release all 7,200 prisoners in Israeli detention centers. This is our goal and aim. But we will wait and see. We have full patience, power and energy to do that. Israel must release all the prisoners and we are ready to release the Israeli soldiers. Despite an incredibly fragile peace, the Associated Press reports that two Palestinians were killed by Israeli gunfire and a further 11 wounded. That's after hundreds of Palestinians who had evacuated to the south for safety tried to return to the north of the Strip. In the footage, you're now seeing Gazans flee as Israeli troops open fire to try and stop them returning. Ahmad Wael, one of those who had moved south for safety, gave The Guardian this account of his hopes of return. I am now very happy. I feel at ease. I'm going back to my home. Our hearts are rested, especially that there is a four-day official ceasefire better than returning to live in tents. I am very tired from sitting there without any food or water. There at home, we can live. We drink tea, make bread using fire and the oven. So that's his hopes of moving back to the north, of course, 
Israel trying to discourage people from doing that, um, including um, by dropping leaflets over southern Gaza, telling people to stay put and reminding them that the war is not yet over. Um, Ash, we're beginning to see you know, what this ceasefire is, is going to look like. Understandably, lots of the people who are you know, living in tents in southern Gaza wanting to return home. I mean, it's going to be very unclear if their homes will still be there because Gaza City has been so destroyed. I mean, it seems a lot like it's a city of rubble now. Um, but, you know, people, I suppose, wanting to go back and find out whether their homes have survived and the Israelis want to keep them in southern Gaza, I suppose, because they want to continue their sort of strategy of pushing people into a corner of the Gaza Strip while they destroy um, cities and towns one by one. So I think in terms of the footage that we've seen today of people from the south of Gaza trying to return to the north, of course, part of it is wanting to live in better conditions than a tent city, to want to be able to return to their homes to see if their homes are still standing, to search for loved ones who remained behind and maybe even recover um, bodies under the rubble. There's also another element, which is there is a understandable and I would say wholly justifiable mistrust of the Israelis when it comes to being able to return to places that Palestinians have been displaced from. Palestinians were supposed to return to the lands that they were displaced from in 1948 during the Nakba. The UN passed a resolution calling for the right of return of displaced Palestinian refugees. Israel didn't abide by it. And when you've got a history which has gone on for more than 70 years of ethnic cleansing, displacement, annexation, of course, Palestinians are going to be thinking to themselves, okay, well, I fled violence. It was supposed to be temporary, but the IDF are saying I can't return without their permission. That permission is never going to come. And so I think that there's an understandable attempt to try and recover their homes while there's a ceasefire in the hope that that ceasefire will stay the hands of the IDF in Gaza. Now, what we've seen today is the IDF employing what they call riot dispersal techniques, which apparently includes the use of live ammunition. Now, if you've got soldiers shooting at civilians, by anyone's definition, normally, that would be a breach of the ceasefire. And I think that this exposes precisely what kind of ceasefire had been operating up until October the 6th. There's supposedly a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel, but it's one which is flouted routinely by the IDF in terms of administrative detention, in terms of using the IDF to police and to harass and to help displace Palestinians in the West Bank. That's really no kind of ceasefire at all. What it is is a pause in aerial bombardment. Um, in terms of whether or not this ceasefire will hold, I think you've got several considerations to weigh up at once. One is whatever is going on behind the scenes in terms of discussions between Israel and the US. Now, one of the things that has been reported on by Politico is that while President Biden has lent his unequivocal support to Israel publicly, there has been some diplomatic efforts to try and get Israel to abide by some elements of international law. If those efforts did actually take place, what we've seen is that Israel, quite frankly, couldn't give a monkey's about US pressure in that regard. They know 
that they're confident of the flow of uh, arms, the uh, geopolitical support. So they don't actually have to stop bombing the hospitals if they don't want to. Um, but I still think that there is some element of international opinion to consider. The second thing is the families of the hostages. So Netanyahu has come under intense pressure from Israeli families of hostages who have said, well, you've you've treated the recovery of our loved ones as secondary to military objectives in Gaza. And if you see other people's loved ones being released day by day, but your loved ones are still in captivity and then fighting resumes, you'll be thinking, well, hang on, why weren't you moving heaven and earth to release um, the the hostages that I'm waiting for? Um, that is balanced against the political pressures which are weighing on Netanyahu. He has, of course, promised nothing less than the total eradication of Hamas. And as I mentioned in the Cortado this morning, everyone knows that when you try and fight an insurgency with endless war, that always works. That's exactly what the British learned in Ireland. And that's why... Um, we we drew hostilities with the IRA to a close so quickly. Um, that is a healthy dose of sarcasm there, just in case you weren't catching it dripping from my words. Um, but he's promised nothing less than the elimination of Hamas. And there are those within his war cabinet who are hungry to see hostilities break out again. So Yoav Gallant, the hardline Likud defense minister, has been saying that Con that aerial bombardment will resume with force, with intensity in four days' time. Um, and I think that weighing on his mind is that it's very, very difficult to start bombing again once you've stopped it. It's difficult to justify public appetite for that kind of thing wanes. So all of these things to consider when you think about this ceasefire and will it hold. One is that it isn't actually conditions of peace for Palestinians in Gaza. They're still subject to IDF violence and IDF occupation. And secondly, that you've got these different countervailing pressures um, weighing on Netanyahu, both to extend the ceasefire and to end the ceasefire in four days' time. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to me unlikely that they could go back and I, mean, I really don't know i mean it, it doesn't seem impossible that they could go back to sort of a, a war on the same scale that they have been doing over the past few weeks but there are as you sort of suggest a couple of problems to that so it was possible while they were bombarding gaza when sort of israelis were complaining about you know they want the hostages back they can say oh well you know hamas can't be trusted anyway the soldiers are going in there to get the hostages that's the best way to get out the hostages well well now we are going to see 50 we assume, 50 Israeli hostages released over this period of time, then if you are a family member of of one of the hostages who are still held in Gaza, you know, it's no longer plausible to even pretend as the government that the best way to get the hostages back is to keep fighting, which, by the way, has been repeated by shed loads of people who should know better. Right? I think I've heard the Labour Party sort of suggest, oh, no, they, they have every right to keep on fighting because they have to rescue the hostages. It's been obvious since day dot, right, since day one, that the way to get back the hostages isn't to you know, continue fighting and sort of rescue them from the tunnels. It's to make a deal with the people who took the hostages, right? So it seems very strange. So to, to begin bombing again, I think would be very proactively to say, sorry, yes, we could have got more of the hostages back. We could have got your family members back alive as we did with these 50. Um, but we decided that, you know, killing more Palestinians was, was more important. So I think that would be very difficult for Israel. I think also, you know, starting from scratch with a similar level of bombardment to before 
you know, they, they don't have the shock fact that they had immediately after October the 7th when they were given leeway, you know, in, in some quarters of, of Western public opinion. Now, it, it will seem, you know, less like, oh, this is how they have to respond because October the 7th just happened. There has just been an atrocity and it will seem more like, well, what are they, in, why are they bombing another city? What are they intending to do? So I, I think there must be a, a sort of new phase of the war that they will have planned. You know, if it's, if it's more sort of strikes here and there as opposed to constant bombing. Um, obviously, you know, for the people of Gaza, it doesn't seem like there's going to be much hope for a, for a long time because, you know, it's going to take a long time to get to any kind of situation where you're talking about rebuilding their homes. You know, Gaza City has been completely destroyed. It's going to be unlivable for, for years. I mean, I think it's quite possible that Israel wants it to be unlivable for forever. Um, but it will be interesting to see where this goes. Uh, as I say, I do think it will be difficult to go back to square one. Next section. Ilon Levy is one of the Israeli spokespeople who has graced our screen since Israel launched its latest bombardment of Gaza. Now, he can usually be found twisting the truth and feigning outrage at wholly legitimate questions. But one host on Sky achieved the impossible and, for a moment at least, made him seem like the most reasonable person on screen. I was speaking to a hostage negotiator this morning. He made the comparison between the 50 hostages, hostages that Hamas has promised, um, promised to release, as opposed to the 150 prisoners that are Palestinians that Israel has said that it will release. And he made the comp comparison between the numbers and the fact that does Israel not think that Palestinian lives are valued as highly as Israeli lives. That is an astonishing accusation. If we could release one prisoner for every one hostage, we would obviously do that. We're operating in horrific circumstances. We're not choosing to release these prisoners who have blood on their hands. We are talking about people who have been convicted of stabbing and shooting attacks. Notice the question of proportionality doesn't interest Palestinian supporters when they are able to get more of their prisoners out. But really, it is outrageous to suggest that the fact that we are willing to release prisoners who are convicted of terrorism offenses, more of them than we are getting our own innocent children back, somehow suggests that we don't care about Palestinian lives. Really, that's a disgusting accusation. Now, as I say, often when he sort of does these outraged answers, it's because someone has asked him a completely legitimate question. Or can we see evidence, you know, that X, Y, Z happened? And they say, are you disbelieving the IDF? Are you disbelieving us? That's the kind of answer he's often giving to perfectly reasonable questions. That was not a reasonable question. That was completely bizarre. It made absolutely no sense. I do not know what she was thinking. Um, we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves, though. Because though Burley's question was bad, um, Levy's answer was pretty bad too. Now he said, we are releasing these prisoners who have blood on their hands. And then he described prisoners who were convicted of terrorism offences. Now that makes it sound like Israel are releasing some pretty dangerous people. This is the reality though. Um, and it's from the not very radical outlet, CNN. Um, so they write, the list of Palestinian prisoners eligible for release includes the ages of the prisoners and the charges on which they are being held. Throwing stones and harming regional security are among the most common. Others are listed as detained for supporting illegal terror organizations, illegal weapons charges, incitement, and at least two accusations of attempted murder. Some of the people are listed as being members of Hamas and other Islamic militant groups, but many of the prisoners are not listed as belonging to any organization. 
Most of the Palestinian prisoners listed as eligible for release are male teenagers aged 16 to 18, children under the United Nations definition, although a handful are as young as 14. Some 33 are women, according to a CNN count. Accusations of attempted murder are, of course, very serious, and CNN says there are two of those. But it sounds as if a lot of the Palestinians set to be released are teenagers guilty of throwing stones. Right, so these aren't incredibly dangerous terrorists or criminals. And that's not surprising. This is from a report from Save the Children on abuse in the Israeli prison system. It was released earlier this year. Palestinian children in the Israeli military detention system face physical and emotional abuse, with four out of five of them being be beaten and 69% strip-searched, according to new research by Save the Children. Nearly half are injured at the point of arrest, including gunshot wounds and broken bones. Some report violence of a sexual nature and some are transferred to court or between detention centers in small cages, the child's rights organization said. This is a press release from them. Save the Children and a partner organization consulted 228 former child detainees from across the West Bank, detained from between 1 and 18 months, and found that most children are beaten, handcuffed, and blindfolded during arrest. They are also interrogated at unknown locations without the presence of a caregiver and are often deprived of food, water, and sleep or access to legal counsel, according to the research. The main alleged crime for these detentions is stone-throwing which can carry a 20-year sentence in prison for Palestinian children, right? So you've got loads and loads of teenagers in prison suffering horrendous abuse, as reported by Save the Children, the majority of them for throwing stones, which can carry a 20-year sentence for throwing stones at an occupying army. Israel has been subject to criticism for the number of Palestinians it arrests and imprisons under what is called administrative detention. Um, now, that can last for months or years without a detainee being told why they are being detained. So this is completely you know, extrajudicial. And this has only got worse since October the 7th. Now, Vox reports this. Before October 7th, the number of Palestinians held by Israel under administrative detention was already at a 20-year high. According to the Israeli human rights organization, Betzalem, there were 1,310 Palestinians imprisoned without charge or trial at the end of September, including at least 146 minors. Since then, Israel has dramatically increased its use of administrative detention, pushing the number of detainees to over 2,000 within the first four weeks of the war. That's out of a total of roughly 7,000 Palestinian prisoners. And Vox quote a director at Amnesty International um, who says this, Amnesty has found that Israel's systematic use of administrative detention against Palestinians indicates that it's used to persecute Palestinians rather than as an extraordinary and selectively used preventative measure. Evidence has shown that administrative detention is a pretext to persecute and deprive people of their fundamental rights and freedoms because they challenge the Israeli military occupation. Um, now, Ash, I think this is important because the way this is reported and the way the sort of Israeli spokespeople talk about it is as if, you know, Hamas are releasing innocent hostages. And obviously Hamas are releasing innocent hostages. You know, the, the people who were taken hostage on, on, on October the 7th are entirely innocent. They were not guilty of anything. Um, but the suggestion is that the release of prisoners by Israel is completely different, you know, because these are criminals. These are terrorists. When in fact... We don't know that much about them, and we do know that Israel does detain lots of people without charge, without telling the people why they are detained. And even if they do tell the people why they are detained, it might be for something as simple as throwing stones. So this isn't 
you know, it's somewhat misleading to sort of talk about this as an exchange of hostages for prisoners, even if, you know, on one level that is, you know, literally true. I do think it is is somewhat misleading because, you know, the prisoners that Israel have are not that dissimilar from hostages. So I think this is a really, really important point to make, which is that Israel gets the benefit and the legitimacy of being a state. And statehood, of course, is something which is denied to the Palestinians. So it means that when we're talking about terrorism, we're talking about the targeting of civilians, the failure to distinguish between military and civilian targets, that is a brush that Hamas gets tarred with. But even though the IDF does all of those things and does them at a far greater scale, they get the benefit of being an army and not a terrorist group because Hamas is a non-state actor and the IDF is, of course, the army of a nation state. When we look at hostage taking, now, this is in no way a defense of Hamas hostage taking just before someone thinks to clip something and put it out of context. Hamas takes hostages by conducting a military raid on Israeli soil. Israel takes hostages by setting up a legal system and calling captivity administrative detention. Now, what this means is that you can be detained without evidence, without charge, without trial, for really as long as the Israeli state wants to hold you on the flimsiest of pretexts, and you have no real recourse to justice. And because the Palestinians don't have a state, they can't do that in return. And because the Israelis do, their hostages get called prisoners, and it's dressed up with all the niceties of the legal system. And there is a, a, a total... Um, a, a, a total inequality of how the use of force, the use of state violence can be applied. Because if a Palestinian is accused of violence against an Israeli, they're subject to the Israeli legal system. If an Israeli settler commits a crime in Palestinian territory, in an illegal settlement against any Palestinian, they can't be arrested and tried by the Palestinian Authority. They have to be indicted by the Israeli state. Um, so that shows you that you've got this, this total monopoly on legitimate violence, so-called by the Israeli state. And it means that the things that they do, which are by magnitudes at a greater scale than anything that Hamas is able to do, it gets cleaned off. It doesn't get tarred with the brush of terrorism, but it's also not held to the same standards that, you know, other westward facing so-called liberal democracies would be held to either. They get to have their cake and eat it too. Um, we discussed the use of human shields on yesterday's show, Michael, which is something which Hamas have been accused of because they operate in densely populated civilian areas. Now, there have been dozens of recorded cases of the IDF using Palestinian civilians as human shields, of Israeli police using Palestinian civilians as literal human shields, even after the practice was supposedly banned by an Israeli court ruling in 2005. Um, and yet, when we're discussing Israel and Palestine in the British media, it's Hamas that use human shields. What Israel do is is completely unmentioned. And I think that this is part of the, the intellectual violence of occupation, which is if you're the side with the army, 
you'll have the upper hand and you'll be treated as a legitimate force in much of the world's media, particularly if you're, you're a state that's allied with particular countries. Whereas if you're a non-state actor, precisely because you've been denied a state, anything you do will be framed as criminality at best or some kind of inherent blood deep evil that you're born with, um, you know, at worst, which is what I think the discussion of Hamas has tipped into. It's this idea of it's an age old hatred rather than it's a political force which has emerged because of Israeli policy over the decades. We've we've talked about the serious substantive point in that clip. Can I also just ask you about Kay Bailey's question? What was she thinking? I think it's very generous of you to presume she was thinking at all. I mean, I think <laughs> that she thought she was doing a sort of like mathematics gotcha, but it really made no sense. Um, and I think there was this moment where um, the guy she was interviewing was puzzled and then sort of recovered and then said all the things that he'd normally say about how dare you, this is a ridiculous accusation. But of all the ways in which you can illustrate that Israel clearly does value Israeli lives far beyond and above Palestinian lives, the idea that they've negotiated a release of fewer Israeli hostages than Palestinian uh, prisoners, in my view, hostages, that's not how you do it. That's that's. It doesn't illustrate that point at all. I want to thank everyone who has chosen to support Navara Media up to now. You make what we do possible, so thank you so much. Um, and if you're new to our channel, we're currently trying to increase our supporter base so we can do even more with our coverage in the next year. You can sign up from as little as £1 per month at navaramedia.com forward slash support. That link is in the description below. Norman Finkelstein is the latest pro-Palestinian voice to go on the Piers Morgan show. Um, Finkelstein is a world-renowned scholar and author of Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. Piers started um, by asking his favourite two questions to Finkelstein. I've asked a lot of guests this, these two questions, and I'd be curious about your answer. One, would you categorise it as a terror attack? And secondly, would you condemn Hamas for what they did? My view is as follows. Number one, as far as the evidence shows now, atrocities occurred on October 7th. The magnitude of the atrocities and the types of atrocities, for example, where children beheaded, where women raped, that remains, so far as I can tell from the evidence, an open question. However, that there were atrocities that occurred? My answer is yes. Number two, that's a, that's a factual question. Then there well, was the question was, was question. it a terror attack? Yeah. Well, atrocities, it seems to me, denotes a terror attack. Okay, thank that's you. That's what atrocities okay, are. Thank you. Okay. So, number two, that's the factual question. And then there is the legal question. As a matter of law, it seems unquestionable that the people who perpetrated these atrocities would be prosecuted and convicted in a court of law. However, I would say on the legal question, I should think that there would be some mercy shown because those who carried out the atrocities were concentration camp inmates. Number three, which I think is the one that concerns you the most, is the moral question. 
And at a moral level, my view is my basic precept. We may disagree. My basic precept is that there but for the grace of God go I. That is to say, I'm very reluctant to condemn people who are in a position or in a condition such that were I in that position or condition, I'm not sure what I would do. Now, the 1,500 young men who burst the gates of Gaza, they were born into a concentration camp. They lived for two decades in a concentration camp. They had no past. They had no present. They had no future. They had no jobs. Half of them, according to humanitarian organizations, suffered from what's called severe food insecurity. And then on top of that, as I'm sure you know, Pierce, because you keep up with the news, periodically Israel goes into Gaza and it mows the lawn. And you know what mows the lawn means. It means a high-tech massacre in Gaza. Now, really impressive answer, I think, because it was so precise. You know, he's very precise with his words. And, you know, I assume Norman Finkelstein has the confidence to do that because he has chronicled what has happened in in Gaza in great detail, right? He clearly knows so much more about the reality in Gaza than Piers Morgan does. Um, I said Piers Morgan started with that question. In fact, there was about four minutes before that where they were discussing um, a, a post Norman Finkelstein had done on Substack after October the 7th, where he had sort of initially been celebrating um, the the attack because he had seen, you know, the footage of, of the fence being taken down and it looking more like a an act of, um, you know, armed resistance, but without targeting civilians. Norman Finkelstein ended up saying, you know, he, he, he feels much more complicated about it. He wouldn't celebrate it now because he's seen how many civilians were killed. But I think that answer was just very impressive because, you know, he's not celebrating the actions. And I do think it's very, very difficult to sort of look at some of the things that happened on October the 7th and the innocent people who who were killed and sort of say, oh, that's a great thing. We celebrate that. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's very problematic to do that. And he sort of said he started doing that until he saw the reality of it and took it back. But he's not willing to condemn the people um, because, you know, who knows what one would do if you'd lived in a concentration camp for 20 years, right? If, if your whole life had been spent in a concentration camp, who are we to condemn the people? So without sort of saying you you endorse the action, and I actually think it's possible to basically condemn the action, but not the people. You know, that seems to me intellectually coherent. Um, but in any case, I think he, 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 he held himself very, very well there. Um, let's go back to the interview because Piers Morgan has another go at getting Norman Finkelstein to condemn Hamas. If you can't start from a basic humanity position of saying what happened on October the 7th was a, a disgusting terror attack worthy of condemnation, then for me, I find it very hard to then respect anyone's demand for people to condemn Israel and their response. Piers, I'm really, and I'm trying to be candid with you. Number one, I appreciate your humanity. I do. I don't know you from Adam. I'm not a TV or a television or a social media kind of person. I'm a book person. I'm old fashioned. However, I do recall that when that famous moment when Susan Boyle appeared on Britain's Got Talent, and I remember the camera turning to you, focusing on you, 
I can see it in my mind's eye. I saw your eyes narrow. And suddenly, the humanity in you came up. Here is this obscure woman whose talent had gone unrecognized. And if I can speak to that same program, for me, the most poignant moment, the one I carry with me my since that moment, was when Simon Cowell asked um, Susan Boyle, well, why haven't you been discovered yet? And she replied, because I haven't been given a chance. And that's how I feel about the people of Gaza. My respect for Norman Finkelstein, I mean, couldn't be higher after watching that clip. You know, <laughs> he said, especially the way he does it. I'm not a TV guy. You know, I'm a book guy. And then goes into great detail about a scene with Susan Boyle and Piers Morgan and Simon Cow, as if this is the language that Piers Morgan will understand. Piers Morgan completely blown away. He does not know what is happening. But the point was a serious one, and it was very, very well made, sorry. Um, and as I say, you know, it is a serious point, um, and he goes on to make it um, with, with reference to the reality of what's going on in Gaza. So let's go back to that clip to see what Norman Finkelstein says next. That's how I feel about those young men in Gaza. You ask me why I won't condemn them. Because those young men were born into a concentration camp. They were born into among the most dense popula uh, populated places on, on God's earth. Half of the population of Gaza's children, 70% are refugees who were expelled from Israel in 1948 and their descendants. 70% of those of Gaza's youth have no jobs, no future, no nothing. They are Susan Boyle times 10,000, never given a chance. And as things looked the night before October 7th, when the question of Gaza was disappearing from the public stage, I will admit to you, peers, I myself had given up on Gaza. In 2020, I decided it's hopeless, it's pointless, I only have a finite number of years left in my life, and it's time for me to move on. And I'll tell you, that was a wrenching decision on my part, because I knew I was abandoning the people who for 15 years, I had devoted my life to chronicling every detail of the horror that had been inflicted on those people. And I gave up on them. Okay. And that meant if I gave up, they had no future because I was the last chronicler. Okay, but what I would say- Gaza. All right. Now, I, I mean, I thought that was very emotional because, you know, Norman Finkelstein has devoted, you know, he, he's not lying there. He has devoted many, many years to chronicling what has gone on in Gaza. And I believe him, actually, when he says that he'd, he'd sort of stopped thinking about it because I do think everyone had sort of expected, you know, the Gazan struggle to just, or the Palestinian struggle in Gaza to just sort of slowly disappear and die. I mean, the wager that the Israelis were making is that they can provide no justice for the Palestinians, but their security system is is, is so well established that they can completely ignore them. 
you know, and and because it was sort of a a slow death of of the Gazan struggle, the world was sort of willing to to ignore it. Now it's 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 very unclear to me if the actions of Hamas has has turned that around, right? Obviously, people are now paying attention to Gaza, but also it gave an excuse for for the Israelis to to counterattack and and kill, you know, over thirteen thousand people, potentially much much higher than that. Um, and I, I don't necessarily see how that attack is going to lead to justice for the Gazans. But what he is explaining there is, is I think, the incredibly important context here, which is the reason so many Gazans were willing to take this risk is because, you know, what was the alternative? The alternative was so unattractive that taking a risk to say, here we are, world, you know, Israel might counterattack with that. Now, obviously, you know, if I was in the control room designing this action, right, I think probably you could have had the benefit of people taking notice without Israel being able to sort of whitewash its complete, you know, attempted genocide in in Gaza if you had only gone for military targets instead of innocent civilians, right? But, you know, th- th- these things are very complex and difficult. And you can see why a people with no hope do take this kind of rash action. Now, I've often heard sort of people in, or supporters of Israel say, this Hamas attack proves why you can't make peace with the Palestinians and why they can't have a state of their own, for example. I think in a way it proves the opposite because if you had a state of your own, you know, states don't normally do this to other states because they don't want to get invaded, right? If if you if you give your neighbor a pretext, if you give your more powerful neighbor, like your neighbor that has military supremacy to the nth degree, right? If you do a provocative attack towards them, you won't do that because you don't want to get invaded. You don't want your state to be destroyed. But Hamas and Gaza, they think we don't have anything to be destroyed, right? So how can you expect actors to sort of, you know, behave like a rational state if you haven't given them a state? They are acting out of desperation. You know, and you can say, well, the, the consequences have been terrible. Also, civilians were killed in horrific circumstances. This isn't to say the action was 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 right. But desperate actions are taken by people in desperate situations. And you can't really describe a more desperate situation than what's going on in Gaza right now. And I think Norman Finkelstein put that very well. And we got one last clip um, we'll, we'll show you. Now, Norman Finkelstein here is asked um, about his parents, um, how his parents would have responded to the Hamas attacks. Now, famously, Finkelstein's parents were both concentration camp survivors during the Nazi Holocaust. How would my parents have reacted? My guess is if on the first day they heard that inmates in a concentration camp burst its gates, I think my parents would be very pleased at that fact. As the events became clearer, my guess, but this is pure speculation, my guess is my parents would go out with their hearts, would go out to those who burst the gates of the concentration camp and whose lives were destroyed. Now, you will say to me, completely legitimately, you would say, well, what would your parents feel about the innocents who were slaughtered in the atrocities on that date? So I'm going to give you as close an answer as I could give, as I'm able to. I once asked my late mother, I said to her, what was your feeling 
when you heard that the German cities were being terror bombed during World War II, the carpet bombing of the German cities targeting civilians. What was your feeling? And my mother's response to me was, quote, our feeling was if we're going to die, we're going to take some of them with us. Now, that's not the most morally elevated statement. I agree. And do I wish my mother had and my father had a heightened sensitivity to German civilian life? I suppose I would wish it. But I will tell you, Pierce, to the last day of my parents' life, it was unthinkable that they would have a kind word to say about Germans. And it was unthinkable that I would ever quarrel with them on that point. Okay. I accepted, I accepted that given their life experience, they okay. had the right to hate the people who destroyed their lives. Okay. And the people Professor of Gaza have the right to hate the people who destroyed their lives. Now, again, I just thought that was so powerful and, and so precise as well, right? Because he, he's not saying, you know, it, it was the right thing for his parents to hate the Germans, but they have the right to do it. it it's not for him to tell them not to hate the Germans. Now, I, I think in this time, lots of people have sort of been thinking about the South African struggle because of the obvious you know, parallels of apartheid, people sort of comparing Hamas to the ANC, etc. Now, what was very interesting with, with, with Nelson Mandela, especially later in his life, he uh, you know, made a big deal out of sort of telling black South Africans, you know, I can see why you want to respond with violence. I can see why you want to take revenge on white South Africans. But that's not how we get to where we want to be. You know, that's not strategically wise and you have to rise above it. And I think that's incredibly impressive, right? And, and, and I do think that sort of treating people with the hatred they treated you is not necessarily always the right thing to do. You know, I think it often is strategic to take the higher ground. And obviously, you know, hatred is not a good thing. If you can avoid hatred, that's great. But who are we to judge people who respond to their own oppression by hating their oppressors? You know, it's, it's not an endorsement of the hatred of those oppressors, but who are we to judge people who do respond in that manner? Ash, what did you make of that, that, that interview in general? I thought that what Norman Finkelstein was doing was something really important. And he was articulating an empathetic connection. Now, normally when we talk about empathy, what we mean is sympathy, a feeling of, oh, my heart goes out to you. But that's not really what empathy is. The kind of empathy that Norman Finkelstein was embodying was this sense of going let me imagine what it is like to be somebody else and let me take you Piers Morgan the viewer on that journey of what this person's experience must be like he did that by talking about the experience of young men who grew up to be Hamas fighters who were born who were raised in an open-air prison in the world's largest concentration camp whose whole lives have been defined by a blockade, by siege, by bombardment, by scarcity, and by lack of opportunity. And then in the latter portion of the interview, he does something which I think is incredibly brave, which is he 
breaks down the distinction between Jewish experiences of suffering in the Holocaust and Palestinian and in particular Gazan experiences of suffering in the present. Because usually when the history of the Holocaust gets invoked with regards to Palestine, it only goes one way. And it's framing the need for Israel to be a Jewish majority state, which doesn't allow for the existence of an independent sovereign Palestinian state because of the need to protect Jewish lives. Why do we have that pressing need? Well, it's because of the near extermination of the Jewish population in the 1930s and the 1940s. What Norman Finkelstein instead is doing is he's saying, well, hang on, there are parallels here between experiences of extreme suffering and what that extreme suffering does to you in terms of how it makes you look at the people who are your oppressor, in this case, Israelis, being brutalized, being oppressed, being denied your rights, being starved, being bombed, being arrested. These aren't things that turn people generally into well-adjusted, happy, open, tolerant members of society. There's a reason why saints don't really walk the earth anymore. And it's because torment generally doesn't actually make you a better person. When you're put into a mode of fight or flight, when your survival response is activated constantly, when you're in a constant state of what psychologists call high arousal, which isn't to do with eroticism, it's to do with being alert, your body being flooded with adrenaline and with cortisol. You, you end up with a way of forming judgments, which aren't the way that we would want everyone to form judgments. But these are adaptive mechanisms, which are formed in response to utterly horrific conditions. And so the same way that you wouldn't judge somebody who had been locked up in one of Assad's prisons in Syria, who'd been tortured, you wouldn't judge them for coming out and not not making judgments in the way that you would feel is most socially useful. Norman Finkelstein saying you, you, you can't hold people in Gaza to the same moral standards as you would for people who haven't experienced bombardment, who haven't experienced siege, who haven't experienced blockade, because it is an inherently warping thing to happen. And to do that by invoking his parents' own experiences of concentration camps, I think is a very brave and a very moving thing to do. It is truly empathetic. It is truly imagining the self in the other and having that mirror back again and again and again through that interview. And I, I mean, I do think that's so important because, um, you know, anyone who follows me on Twitter would have seen that last night I went to see that 45 minute long um, sort of film made by the IDF out of footage from, in some circumstances, Hamas um, body cameras, in some circumstances, dash cam footage, in some circumstances, um, uh, footage from first responders. And it is, you know, it's it's very distressing. You know, th there are scenes where you can see fighters target and kill civilians, a clear war crime. Now, I should say, I, I think the moments where you actually see that is in single digits. You see lots and lots of dead people, right? But it, it's difficult to piece together exactly 
the sequence of events. And I think it's very irresponsible the way um, that the IDF are sort of putting together this screening, not giving any of the, um, uh, the, the, the footage to journalistic outlets that can actually verify it and put it into proper context and report it independently. And basically showing it to a load of journalists who can then sort of go on their commentators, essentially, who can then go on their radio stations and sort of say, the things I saw are unimaginable. And then the audience can let their imaginations go wild, right? Many of the things you have heard about, you know, beheaded babies, um, you know, people burnt alive intentionally. You know, there are lots of charred bodies. You, you, you don't know how it happened, right? Who, who was it who exploded that car? None of this context is there. And this is not to deny that there were atrocities. There were clear atrocities. Some of them are in that film. But the fact that they are showing this in secret and then getting people to sort of performatively say, you won't believe the things I've seen, I think it's ideologically very, very problematic. But the reason I bring this up here is because one of the things that people seem most shocked about when they watch the movie, right? Well, it's not a movie, is it? The, the, the footage, the, the curated film, let's say, because it is heavily curated by the IDF, is they are shocked that some of the, the militants, fighters, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, do seem to be celebrating the killing of Israelis. And they do speak, you know, of people as dogs, right? And people seem to be interpreting that as that there is this ancient hatred. These are people who are deeply um, anti-Semitic in the same way that the Nazis were anti-Semitic. These are people who are amid this sort of incredibly violent culture full of bloodlust. And kind of, I watched it and it's difficult to watch. You know, as I say, I don't think anyone should kill civilians, right? I, I don't think that's a good thing. It's a bad thing. But I didn't watch that and think, oh my God, where did these guys get all this hatred from, right? To me, that seemed like, oh, I can see why they have all this hatred. Not to justify it. This is not to justify it, but to explain it is because these people's lives have been ruined by Israel, right? They've never met an Israeli, apart from maybe having a gun pointed at them. And so they are filled with hatred of Israelis. And yes, I mean, if it, to move towards some sort of sustainable peace, maybe you will need a kind of Nelson Mandela figure who, who helps people sort of put those hatreds behind them. But it's not surprising, right? It's not surprising. You don't need to sort of say, oh, they're, they're, this is uh, Islamist ISIS-like, uh, an Islamist ISIS-like ideology of hatred. No, it's, 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 it's how a colonized people often respond to their colonizer. Again, it's not to justify it, it's to explain it. It's not surprising. But I think you have so many people who don't have the kind of knowledge that Norman Finkelstein has, the, the empathy, as you say, and that Norman Finkelstein has, who, who say, well, how can they celebrate killing people? They must be pure evil. Um, Ash, I want your thoughts on this. It's, it just so happened, actually. It was a coincidence um, that yesterday I also watched a documentary. It was hosted by, why has his name escaped me? The famous Newsnight host who used to do tough questioning and people sort of mocked it sometimes. Uh, Jeremy Paxman. Jeremy Paxman, thank you. Jeremy Paxman hosted this documentary about the British Empire, which I think is, is quite good. Um, and they had a scene about the, the the Indian mutiny, or I think they call it the first war of independence, the Indians do. And that had a situation whereby you had lots of Indians rise up against their colonizers. And, you know, I'm not saying Israel is exactly the same as the British Empire, but clearly if you are Gazan, you, you, you feel like you are being colonized because you have Israel ruining your life. You, you have no freedom, you have no independence, and it's because of, of Israel. And in the Indian mutiny, you had a situation whereby 
there was a rebellion amongst Indians. They killed a, a hell of a lot of civilians, right? It was a situation where you had lots of house servants, so Indians working in British homes who killed the entire families, you know, often in quite brutal, gruesome ways. And then the Brits responded as sort of colonial powers often do by saying, well, we are going to react the same, but times 10, right? So whereas um, there was brutal killing by some of the Indians mutinying against their colonial masters, the, the Brits had to say, you want to try this on us? We can do this to you times 10, which is basically exactly what Israel has done to Gaza. We can do this to you times 10. You know, it might end up being a lot more than times 10. But we don't talk about that as if, oh, the Indians had just this ancient hatred of, of British people, of English people. Why were they so full of hate? Of course the English couldn't make peace with the Indians because the Indians were so full of hate that it would have been impossible um, for them to be, you know, it would be impossible for them to be independent because they are just a culture, a, a culture of hatred who, who can't possibly um, govern themselves. Like, that's not, I'm sure that's how they talked about it at the time. That's not how we talk about it now. And I do think the analogy is is quite strong, really. As I say, not exact, because I don't think you know Jews in Israel have a home to go to in the same way that the Brits in India did. But in terms of the experience of the colonized, I don't think there is much difference. It's funny you say, well, I'm sure they um, thought about it as this sort of you know wild, bloodlust, almost genetic kind of hatred at the time, because they did. So if you go back and you look at 19th century depictions, often in uh, the form of paintings of the Indian mutiny, First War of Independence, you often have the figure of Britannia gendered as a woman, either being mauled, you know, sort of put on her back is almost an, an image of sexual violence, or she's sort of, you know, rearing up and like, you know, rising up to fight back. Um, and that's the story of here is this figure of Britain, gendered as a woman who is being ravaged by these brown savages and either needs to be rescued, brought up from off her back, or she's kind of in this moment of, uh, I guess it's it's revenge, but but a just revenge. So that was a, the sort of deep story and the deep narrative. And I think that you can see parallels to how Israel is being depicted today. So immediately following October the 7th, you had this rush, bizarrely, by British politicians to start gendering Israel as she. She has the right to protect herself. Um, you've got these claims, which as Norman Finkelstein said, still open questions about the nature of some of the particular allegations of the atrocities. But one of them, which I think is um, being repeated over and over, is one of um, widespread rape of female Israeli civilians by Hamas fighters. Because again, this image of the raped woman, the, the ravished woman who needs you to avenge her, is a very potent one when it comes to justifying colonial oppression. Now, I think, of course, there are differences between Israel and the British Empire, but it is a colonial project. Zionism was intended by Theodore Herzl to be a colonial project. And when you think about what it entailed, and I'm just talking in the bare bones, what the formation of the State of Israel did was that it tried to create a Jewish majority country where there was already an Arab majority country. 
Now, if you do that, of course, that necessitates apartheid. Of course, that necessitates ethnic cleansing of the kind that we saw in the Nakba, in the Naksa, and now in terms of the forcible transfer of civilians in Gaza as well. Of course, that means on a, a widespread basis, denying the rights of Palestinians, because you're trying to create an Arab minority in a place where there was previously an Arab majority. And what's sort of unique about Israel is because of its formation as a state coming immediately after the Holocaust, is that you can connect what is essentially a supremacist project to a history and an experience of very real and incredibly extreme persecution. That's a bit different from Britain. None of the Brits were claiming uh, that they'd been persecuted back in Blighty, and so that's why they had to colonize India. It was just a a belief in their own inherent superiority, and that it was in the British uh, national interest. But what's unique about Israel is that it is a project of colonialism, a, a project which is inherently supremacist because you're trying to clear a land of its um, original inhabitants and at best create a two-tier system when where one people, one ethnicity, one race, uh, you know, a, the minority religion has fewer rights and another has has more rights. At best, that's what you get is a supremacist apartheid settlement. And at worst, what you have is ethnic cleansing, if not genocide. And if you're on the receiving end of that, because you're Palestinian, maybe you're a descendant of refugees from 1948. Maybe you and your family are watching settlement expansion. Maybe it's encroaching on your land. Maybe you're having to interact with violent settlers on a daily basis. Or maybe you were born and you were raised in Gaza. The hatred that you feel isn't the result of an anti-Semitic animus towards Jewish people because they're Jewish. It's a hatred and an animus directed towards Israelis because of what the Israeli state has done. Now, I agree with you. An ideal state is where people don't hate each other. But in a context where you've got one side carrying out ethnic cleansing, one side carrying out forcible displacement, one side which has an army, one side which has sovereignty, and all these things are denied to the other side. And the other side just doesn't have the capacity to enact ethnic cleansing and enact genocide in the way the the Israeli state has the capacity to do. I'm not going to sit around condemning and trying to regulate other people's emotions because that's just not the priority. It would be completely bizarre I think, if you just explained it like this in the most bare bones way for you to emerge with a sense of like, oh, making sure people don't hate each other is the most important thing. No, it's actually about material conditions on the ground. That needs to be dealt with first before you can start changing how people see each other as human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd contest the idea that the best case scenario with Israel is some form of apartheid, right? Because I do think if you had a a two-state solution where you had a an obvious Jewish majority within, you know, say the borders of of, of the 1948 UN 
suggestion or agreement or whatever we're calling it, um, resolution, I suppose, um, then then you you wouldn't need to have an apartheid system because you would you could have a Jewish majority state without disenfranchising the Palestinians. The the reason I think they have apartheid is because they wanted the whole land from the river to the sea. If, if you want the whole land from the river to the sea, then yes, you have to have apartheid or ethnic cleansing. I mean, I suppose very briefly, Ash, are we on the same page on that or, or do you think I've got something wrong here? Well, when I was saying best case scenario, I was talking about in terms of the realities of the Zionist project. The reality of the Zionist project is for there to be a Jewish majority in the land of historic Palestine. And the partition plan, even the 1967 partition plan, which I think, you know, I, look, in my ideal would be you would have a democratic one state where you've got very, very strong protections for minorities in different different regions. That would be my ideal. If there is a just two-state settlement, it's not for me to accept. It's obviously for Palestinian people to accept. And that is the position of the PLO. And that's even, in a kind of weird way, the position of Hamas as well. It's not for me to go, oh, actually, you're doing Palestinian liberation wrong. Um, I can understand that because of the facts of the ground, the fact that so many Jewish people live there, the fact that in order for them to not live there, that would require a massive crime against humanity. Um, you know, what you have to do is is come up with a settlement which feels fair and just to both sets of civilians. I can understand that Jewish people want their own state, don't agree with ethnostates, I can understand it. Um, but the reality of Zionism is that it has always been a supremacist project. It hasn't really been about how can you have a viable Palestine which is non-contiguous. So you've got one bit in Gaza and one bit in the West Bank, that non-contiguous settlement, I think, in my opinion, has been a waypoint on the road to ethnic cleansing because the partition agreement was where, the at the time, the Jewish minority got the lion's share of the land. They got the majority of the land. They got the best arable farming. That was what the UN... Um, the UN declaration agreed. So I don't know. I, I When it comes to like two state or one state, I think that these things can operate as abstractions. And what I'm interested in are the material conditions of safety and security and self-determination for Palestinians and for Jewish people. Um, that's, that's my first priority. Um, but in terms of seeing two states as a fair set settlement, it might be the best settlement that you can get within the realities of the situation, but I don't think it's a fair one. Let's go to our final story, which is lighter. We've got a lighter clip to end the week with. This is Nadine Doris failing to hold a secret to her grave. So someone basically ripped up your letter and wrote a different one, presumably with your signature on the bottom. I think what they did was they crossed out the name. Uh, Michael Graydon wrote the name Stephen Gilbert in, on my advice note. And who do you think did that? I'm never going to say because... Um, do you know? Yeah. Why won't you say? I do know. Yeah, I what, do know. Why won't you say? Well, I believe that it was Dougie Smith. <laughs> I'm never going to say. I'm never going to say. 11 seconds later, oh, it was Dougie Smith. <laughs> 11 seconds, Ash. I know some people can't keep secrets, but 11 seconds from I will never say to it was Dougie Smith. Can you imagine you're like a torturer and you've got, you're trying to get a secret out of Nadine Doris and you're sort of getting out your tongs and everything. She's like, oh, go on then. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where they are. 
I'm sorry, but she's just like me for real because I crumble (laughs) under the absolute lightest questioning and it's really, really, really bad. So I've realized the solution is that I can't say, by the way, I've got gossip and I'll never tell you what it is. I just can't say I've got gossip. Because if I go, oh my God, I actually have got this really great secret, but I can never tell you. And someone's like, go on then. I'll be like, no, I can never tell you. They'll be like, go on then. I'll be like, oh, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose the context, this is she recommended someone to chair Ofcom and then somewhat, I don't really care what the context is. We just showed you that because it's a funny clip. We're going to wrap up there. Um, thank you Ash for joining me this evening thank you so much for having me on and not asking me to spill any of my secrets because I would I would crumble or provide the context to what the hell Nadine Doris was talking about there when she was trying to keep a secret and then didn't oh, I don't think you care either you can look it up something to do with the Ofcom chair um, thank you everyone for watching this evening um, come back on Monday for another live stream from 6pm for now you've been watching Navarra Media Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.